now I'm going to introduce our next panel, which is on an expanded Fed mandate. Uh, please welcome one of our truly outstanding uh, reporters uh, on all things monetary, who will moderate the panel. That's the New York Times, Gina Smilek. And Gina, it's all yours. Take it away. Thank you, George. Uh Maybe a little bit overly complimentary, but I'll take it. Um, good afternoon. Thank you uh, for joining this panel. As George mentioned, I'm Gina Smilek. I'm the Federal Reserve reporter at the New York Times. Um, and I'm excited to be with you today moderating what promises to be an interesting discussion on an expanded Fed mandate. The Fed has crossed lines it never had before over the past decade, first with the scale of its asset purchases and more recently with its pandemic response. It, for the first time, bought corporate debt, supported loans to mid-sized businesses, and supported the municipal bond market during this, this crisis. Um, Chair Jerome Powell spent 2020 advocating for more fiscal support and then reworking the Fed's own policy framework. Fed officials are now grappling with whether they ought to issue a central bank digital currency and what role they play in insulating the financial system from the potentially harmful effects of climate change. This is clearly a new economic normal and it's clearly a new Fed, but what should the limits be? What role should a central bank play in society? These are big questions that remain outstanding. Um, and to discuss this, we've got a great panel. Otmar Essing is the president of the Center for Financial Studies at the Goethe University in Frankfurt, and he is former chief economist at the European Central Bank, a role he served in from 1998 to 2006. Prior to that, he was at the Bundesbank, um, and he's the author of textbooks on monetary theory and monetary policy. Karen Petral is managing partner at the advisory firm Federal Financial Analytics. She's author of the recent book, Engine of Inequality, the Fed and the Future of Wealth in America. And Scott Sumner is a monetary policy expert at George Mason University's Mercatus Center um, and a professor emeritus at Bentley University. He writes the popular economics blog, Money Illusion, and his writing focuses on monetary policy and macroeconomic history. Each panelist is going to speak for about 15 minutes, after which I will take some questions from the audience. So please do send those in. Um, and with that, I am going to go ahead and send it over to Otmar um, for, the first, for the first speech. Thank you, Gina. Uh, <clears throat> Thank you for having invited me to this prestigious uh, conference. Today, most major central banks are endowed with the status of independence. Historically, this was anything but the norm. There were important reasons why central banks were not independent. Firstly, and above all, the independence of the central bank seems to contradict core principles of democracy. Should competence for such an important task as setting interest rates for the whole economy be given to unelected technocrats? Secondly, for a long time, most economists were not in favor of independence for the central bank. It is interesting to note that this position was taken by two camps that otherwise had little in common. On the one hand, there were economists like Jim Tobin, who argued that the most efficient coordination between monetary and fiscal policy could be achieved by having the central bank act as part of the government. On the other side of the spectrum was a group of economists like Milton Friedman and Karl Brunner. They argued in the tradition of Herbert Simmons that discretionary multi-policy decisions should not be handed over to central bankers who, 
in many cases had demonstrated severe incompetences. Overall, for a long time, central bank independence was not treated as a major issue. There was hardly any relevant international discussion. Against this background, it seems surprising that around 1990, so many countries decided to endow their central banks with the status of independence. Two reasons for this change of mind can be identified. The great inflation in the US in the 1970s triggered, after a significant time lag, a number of studies explaining the institutional background of this development. In the end, innumerable publications have de delivered empirical evidence. There is a strong negative correlation between the degree of central bank independence and inflation. As it happened, this consensus emerged at a time when Europeans were preparing the introduction of a common currency and discussing the statute of the future European Central Bank. Here, the example of the Deutsche Bundesbank as the only truly independent central bank in Europe played an important, if not decisive role. The D-Mark alongside the Swiss franc had been the most stable currency in the world and Germany had also escaped the great inflation. It is no wonder that the German government insisted on the status of independence for the future European Central Bank. All other countries aiming to participate in European Monetary Union had to accept this position more or less reluctantly. President François Mitterrand at the time, just after having signed the treaty in which uh, the independence is enshrined, uh, made a declaration that he thinks totally otherwise, that monetary policy decisions would be still taken by the uh, European Council, by politicians. <clears throat> and one had also to note that at that time, no other central bank in Europe uh, was really independent. A German expert of constitutional law delivered the following argument for endowing, in this case, the Bundesbank with the status of independence. I quote, the voluntary waiver of power by the political leadership in favor of monetary policymakers is limited, authorized by the constitution and revocable at any time by the ordinary legislation." End of quote. In the case that independence is grounded on the, on the constitution, such a change is more difficult to achieve. The ECB's independence is even enshrined in an international treaty that can only be changed by unanimous decision by all member states. The consensus that had emerged can be summarized as follows. Central bank independence in a democracy can be constitutionally legalized, is a prerequisite for a stable currency, has to be restricted to a clear and limited mandate. In the decade following the victory, so to say, of independence, the world enjoyed the period of great moderation. Inflation came down from rather high levels and remained stable. Growth and employment were at least satisfactory, while variability of output substantially declined. This period considerably enhanced 
the reputation of central banks and their leaders. It was almost unavoidable that, as a consequence, expectations regarding the ability of central banks to control the economy reached an unprecedented and unsustainable peak. This prestige was further heightened during the financial crisis when central banks were perceived as having saved the world from a repeat of the Great Depression of the 1930s, of course, together with fiscal policy. Disappointment with politics in general and the loss of trust in politicians have also contributed to heightened public expectations of central banks. Central banks were not known for warning against such elevated expectations. Indeed, central bankers seemed to rather enjoy this high status. On top of this already fragile position came new obligations. Central banks have been made responsible for macro and micropotential policies. However, there can be situations in which a conflict may arise with the primary objective of maintaining price stability and in case of a dual mandate, high unemployment. The main challenge for central banks stems from the responsibility for financial stability. The financial crisis triggered an intense discussion over the extent to which central banks should be made directly responsible for financial stability and how they should deliver on this goal. A consensus has emerged that preserving price stability is not enough. The great moderation demonstrated that huge risks to financial stability can develop during times of low and stable inflation. Following Minsky's argument, a stable environment might even foster the buildup of financial fragilities that might end in a collapse of the whole system. Is there a trade-off between price stability and financial stability? This is a key question provoked by the above consensus. While a short-term conflict may arise, there's no reason to sacrifice price stability over the medium to long-term to preserve financial stability. As if contributing from the sources explained above, <clears throat> as if overburdened by this uh, additional um, tasks and the assuming risk, ensuing risk of their reputation, if this were not enough, central banks continue to assume further responsibilities. Unavoidably, monetary policy has an impact on the distribution of income and wealth. These implicit consequences are a clear departure from a concept in which a central bank takes decisions targeted at specific sectors or groups in society. For example, by giving credit at special conditions to students, specific sectors or companies. Such preferential actions are a highly political act that must be reserved to policymakers who are ultimately responsible to their voters. In its communication on the new strategy, the Fed announced that it will conduct its monetary policy in a way that will have important distributional effects. In his speech at the annual Jackson Hole Symposium of 2020, Chair Jerome Powell emphasized that as America's long 
pre-pandemic economic sp expansion and I would like to add expansionary Fed policy continued, I quote, the gains began to be shared more widely across society. The black and Hispanic unemployment rates reached record lows and the differentials between these rates and the white unemployment rate narrowed to their lowest levels on record, end of quote. To assume such a responsibility raises a number of questions. Can the process of the economy running hot always be stopped before inflation gets out of control? How should a conflict with the goal of price stability be resolved? The explicit acceptance of responsibility for distribution will place an additional press pressure on the central bank. In any way, it will be exposed to a political debate that will go beyond what we have experienced up to now. And the central bank's independence will come under strong attack. In the summer of 2021, the ECB published the result of its strategy review. A major change is the inclusion of challenges stemming from climate change. Climate change and corresponding government policies in response to it can have powerful effects on economic developments. These consequences are reflected in all kinds of variables, growth, inflation, employment, that will in turn affect forecasts and in this way influence monetary policy decisions. Identifying the impact of climate change brings a major challenge in terms of adopting existing models and developing new ones. Indirect implications for climate change's direct consequences follow from the adoption of the design of its multi-policy operational framework in relation to disclosures, risk assessment, corporate sector asset purchases, and the collateral framework. The basic underlying idea is to form an in-house, an in-house central bank judgment on the value of assets that incorporates climate risks and regulatory requirements disclosures. The climate policy adjusted price or risk will then be the basis for actions by the ECB from the eligibility as collateral to corporate sector asset purchases. To call this a tremendous challenge is still a euphemism. Financial markets will price in problems for companies stemming from factors such as foreseeable end of burning coal, for example. How should the central bank know better than markets? Climate change is probably the biggest challenge of our time and central banks cannot ignore this and must not be seen as being blind to these risks. At the same time, Confronting climate change is above all the responsibility of governments that are responsible to their parliaments and ultimately to their voters. Central banks are not made independent so that they can go beyond their mandate or actively correct decisions of parliaments. And with their climate-oriented actions, they should not deliver arguments that stronger measures by governments are unnecessary. If they raise expectations, beyond their capabilities in this field, they will undermine their reputation and lose support for their independence, 
which in the end is indispensable for maintaining price stability. Besides analytical problems, the ECB justifies its self-decided, self-declared role in this field with the argument that climate change can have implications for price stability. However, does this imply the ECB assuming inflation is a target would argue against significant gradual future increases of carbon taxes that would push trend inflation above 2%? This is not clarified and there's uh, no signal so far how the ECB will deal with that. To conclude, not least due to, due to their success during the great moderation and in helping to prevent a depression after the collapse of financial markets in 2007-2008, central banks were already exposed to elevated expectations. What followed was an overburdening with additional competences in micro and macro potential supervision. In the meantime, central banks have assumed additional new responsibilities. However, central banks are not almighty. Central bankers should instead show a sense of humility. They must clarify and announce what monetary policy can achieve and even more important, what it cannot deliver. Merely de facto accepting excessive expectations or even contributing themselves to this development amplifies a major threat to their reputation because disappointment over failures to meet these expectations must follow. Even when central banks are successful in affecting issues that are not within their core mandate, policies over time will not accept that independent central banks extends its action into the domain that must be reserved for politicians who are accountable to parliament and ultimately to voters. The spread of central bank independence was based on the idea of a clear and limited mandate. To turn the argument around, who could convincingly argue that independence should be given to a central bank that invades deeply into a sphere that must be reserved for the democratic process? Unelected power must be limited and continuously justified by appropriate policy. Thank you for your attention. Great, thank you for those comments. Um, so now we are going to turn it over to Karen. Uh, so Karen, go ahead. Thank you very much, Gina. And I will very much build on, on what Otmar has said with a focus on the United States. When I finished writing my book in June of 2020, Obviously the pandemic was upon us and the CARES Act had just been passed, giving that the Fed explicit authority for certain fiscal actions, particularly uh, entry into these um, mid-sized main street, so-called small businesses and the municipal uh, debt sector. But the Fed had already entered, as Gina rightly said, the corporate bond sector and numerous others in huge fashion, building on its significant positions in treasuries and agency mortgage-backed securities acquired when it started quantitative easing in 2009. 
my book, as, as Gina said, is called Engine of Inequality, The Fed and the Future of Wealth in America. And one of the, the comments I've gotten back a great deal since then was, first of all, that the Fed is not solely responsible for American income and wealth inequality. And I say, and I'll say again, I never say so in the book. I say there are many causes of economic inequality, but we ignore central banking and the Fed's role at considerable peril, as well as at one of the few causes that we can address in very short order without the need for extensive political discussion. But the other point, and I'd really like to focus on that today, is that I think the division between fiscal and monetary policy in the United States, and as Otmar has said, increasingly in Europe, and in Japan, where the Central Bank of the Bank of Japan owns exchange-traded funds and is a huge participant in, the, in its um, equities market, I think the differentiation between that pure monetary policy mandate um, that the Fed loves to cite, just maximum employment and price stability, and its truly significant, profound fiscal impact needs to be addressed. We need to notice that in, in many nations, and I'll again focus on the United States, monetary policy has become not only de facto fiscal, but also in many ways a far more powerful fiscal force because of the giant force of post-crisis and especially post-COVID monetary policy in terms of the portfolios, ultra-low interest rates, and the sectors central banks choose to support or leave behind. In the United States, as I detailed in the paper I prepared for this conference, I think there are three main avenues through which current monetary policy has direct and clear fiscal impact and often fiscal impact that runs directly counter to these extra extraordinary efforts at macroeconomic, shared macroeconomic growth, you see from the, the official fiscal side, from the Congress, from the CARES Act, from the initial Biden package, now from infrastructure, and maybe shortly from the really big, quote, Build Back Better bill. Fed is not just a fiscal power, but I think one essentially pulling the other direction, often negating an overwhelming fiscal policy. First, it does so through its huge position in the market. Now, the portfolio of the Fed is equal to at least a third of GDP, and the Fed's position in treasury obligations is 60 to 80% of new issues. That's a huge position. The Fed has, in my opinion, monetized the treasury debt by virtue of containing it. It bought virtually all of the new debt issued in the course of the pandemic, seeming to make the markets operate without the quote crowding out and all those issues, but the Fed is now the key determinant of American fiscal policy in terms of the rate that is paid and the supply that does or doesn't enter the financial markets. That's a really big fiscal power. How much debt, people who believe in modern monetary theory believe that the government can issue lots of debt because the Fed will buy it and the Fed will set rates to facilitate it. That, that's not maximum employment, that's not price stability, and that's certainly not the third key mandate in law for the Fed moderate interest rates. It's fiscal. The Fed exercises direct authority power over credit allocation and capital formation by virtue of, these, of the assets it chooses to purchase and the price it chooses to pay. That's overt. 
just the fact that it's only treasuries and only MBS except when it isn't is not really, I think, an appropriate response to the fact that the Fed has and has and has exercised tremendous power far beyond what it in 2016 believed was the extent of its authority under Section 13.3 of the Federal Reserve Act and the assets it could buy. The Fed also exercises monetary fiscal power in a very interesting way. And I cite in my paper, a new um, paper, I thought very interesting from the Bank from in of International Sentiments, the Bank for International Settlements, arguing that ultra low rates have made treasury, US treasury obligations equivalent to bank reserves as a form of money. And therefore the Fed's treasury obligations, not only do they act as a direct fiscal um, asset or a pricing mechanism, but they are now directly participating in the economy in a payment system by virtue of driving the price of a new form of money. I think we need to think very hard about that. And then finally, and most importantly, because of the size of these operations, the Fed has overwhelmed fiscal policy. And the reason it does, the size is critical and the force that that exerts in the market is essential. Nobody moves in the financial markets, the equity and the bond markets with the power of the Fed. The incredible monomaniacal focus over who will be the next chairman of the Fed evidence is the fact that this is not the old decision about interest rates and price stability that used to just transfix market insiders. It's a national decision with significant macro political consequence because the Fed is the most profound macroeconomic power, monetary and fiscal. It, when it moves the markets, it moves the money far faster than fiscal policy can, other than through the kinds of direct stimulus, checks in people's hands that we saw in the Cures Act and may see again. If you look at infrastructure spending, you look at the tax changes, those take time to, to, to implement. And particularly when you think about this in the context of inequality, time is not on our side. One of the key um, lessons of Thomas Piketty's book, Capitalism in the 21st Century, is that economic inequality is cumulative. The richer you are, the richer you get, the poorer you are, the poorer you get, unless policy cuts that, that cycle, that engine. When the Fed drives markets as it does, it is a powerful engine of American economic inequality, income as well as wealth. I just saw a statistic the other day. I mean, if I know, and Otmar read that passage from Chairman Powell about how more equal America had gotten in terms of wages and the black white wage uh, economic gap and so forth. That in real dollars in 1990, an American trucker earned the equivalent of $120,000. Today it's 43. This, people know people get really angry because their, their wages are not keeping up with prices. Their lives changed enormously. The political populist instinct drives that because things are not working well. The markets are doing great. The, market, the economy as a whole, no matter all, the direct fiscal policy is being pulled in an unequal direction of asset price bubbles, slow growth, and increasing inequality. And the Fed is not the sole, but a really prime driver of that. Now, 
I have to say my book has made a bit of a fuss and uh, Chairman Powell has been questioned on this several times when he's before it appeared before Congress. And he strongly disagrees with my approach to Fed's indirect fiscal power. And he consistently says indirectly what Mark Carney said directly, which is essentially if central bank policy has distributional impact, it's up to fiscal policy to clean it up. Well, it can't. Monetary policy is too powerful and has, by virtue of direct choices of the Fed, so many direct fiscal effects that I think fiscal policy, if it tries to clean it up, will always be a dollar short and far too late. The Fed's mandate is in fact one that requires it, in my view, to focus on its own fiscal impact and ensure that it is as equitable and as focused on shared prosperity as it can be through maximum employment, price stability, and moderate interest rates. I've gone through the statutory history of the mandate in the paper I prepared for this conference. And I really think it's important to put the direct mandate of the Federal Reserve Act in the context of the broader mandate set for the Fed and acknowledged by the Fed's Council over many years in the Full Employment Act of 1946, as it was revised in 1977 and again in 78. And there, the federal government, in coordination with the Fed, is given a mandate for an array of tasks, including maximizing, and I quote here, the general welfare. I think the Fed loses sight of its mission. It wants to have, it wants to have its cake with full independence and eat it too by virtue of moving the markets, moving the money, moving employment, moving assets, asset sectors as it thinks right. And with given all these direct fiscal effects and the inequality results, that's a disaster over time for anything close to the concept of an independent central bank. The Fed is, needs to be accountable for its indirect fiscal effects because it is, in my opinion, responsible for them. We need to reckon with them in the United States in particular. I think other countries may wish to do this too. The barriers between monetary and fiscal policy are nowhere near as sacrosanct as one would believe listening to central bankers defend their independence. And I think that will crumble down in a far more unfortunate and directly fiscal way um, if we aren't careful in terms of thinking through what it would take to have independent central banking with a focus only on interest rates and markets and limited market stability. Thank you very much. Great, thank you for those comments, Karen. Um, and with that, I'll pass it off to Scott. Okay, uh, it's good to be here. Uh, thanks for inviting me. Um, I'm gonna talk today about the implications of the world of low interest rates for the Fed's mandate. And um, obviously the, the current issue that most people are focused on and we've heard speakers um, talk about already is the mission creep problem. Like many people, I'm very skeptical of having the Fed uh, take on additional policy goals, <clears throat> but a lot of people have addressed 
this issue more effectively than I can. Um, I'll point to Christina Skinner, Claudio Borio, and some of the speakers we've just heard. <clears throat> so instead, I'm going to focus on an issue that I know something about, which is what is the impact of low interest rates on the Fed's mandate? How, how does that change how the Fed has to operate? And most of my focus is going to be on interpreting and clarifying what the mandate actually is. So as you may know, the uh, 1977 congressional mandate, uh, which is often called a, quote, dual mandate, is actually a triple mandate. So in addition to stable prices and high employment, there's also a, a mandate for moderate long-term interest rates. Now, in the past, economists have tended to interpret that mandate as um, basically being covered by the uh, stable prices part of the Fed mandate. In other words, economists assume there's not much the Fed can really do on that front other than to preserve price stability or at least low inflation over the long run. And that was originally my view as well. Uh, but in recent years, I've kind of shifted my view on that question. And, um, so I think we need to look a little bit more carefully at what, what does Congress actually mean by moderate long-term interest rates. To me, the most straightforward interpretation of that phrase, um, and notice how the term moderate, by the way, is different from, say, high employment. They didn't say moderate employment. They said high employment. So by saying moderate long-term interest rates rather than high or low, I think they were signaling that it was sort of a compromise between those in Congress that worried about the welfare of borrowers and were concerned about high interest rates, which reached double digit levels in the 1970s, and those in Congress that were concerned about the welfare of savers and did not want excessively low uh, interest rates. So I think previously, economists, including myself, have sort of interpreted the phrase um, moderate long-term interest rates as meaning you know, not very high. Um, but now I think it makes more sense to interpret moderate as not particularly high or particularly low, but sort of a, somewhere in the middle, maybe single digit but positive interest rates. Now, personally, I doubt that Congress had good reasons for mandating moderate long-term interest rates. Um, on the other hand, the more I think about it, the more I think there are actually some good reasons why it would make sense for the Fed to take that mandate seriously, which is after all written right into their uh, authorization law. So this is what I'd like to talk about next. And this is not because I favor interest rate targeting. In fact, I'm probably one of the few economists that is skeptical of interest rate targeting and would prefer the Fed to target some other variable. Uh, rather, I think that what we really are looking at here is a need for um, a monetary policy that, that generates an economy that has moderate equilibrium long-term interest rates. And I want to emphasize the term equilibrium and also nominal, by the way. So moderate equilibrium nominal long-term interest rates. Now, if money is neutral in the long run, then moderate long-term interest rates require a monetary policy that produces adequate levels of nominal GDP growth. This is because nominal interest rates, especially long-term rates, are correlated with long-term growth in nominal GDP or expected growth rates in long-term nominal GDP. 
The Fed doesn't have any magic wand to set interest rates where it wants, especially in the long term, other than by influencing macroeconomic conditions like inflation and nominal GDP growth. <clears throat> now, I'm not certain what sort of rate of nominal GDP growth would be ideal in terms of generating moderate long-term interest rates, but one thing is pretty clear. The sort of nominal GDP growth that we see in countries like Japan over the past 25 years is clearly not adequate to generating moderate long-term interest rates. But I would go even further. I would suggest that not just Japan, but also much of Europe has failed to achieve moderate long-term interest rates. And as you know, in many countries, interest rates are even negative on bonds with significant maturity. So that raises the question then of what are the advantages of moderate long-term interest rates? Why should the Fed take this part of its mandate seriously? Well, I could point to a couple advantages. First, the Fed can stabilize aggregate demand with conventional tools as long as interest rates are significantly above zero, eliminating the need for fiscal policy. In my view, fiscal policy is highly costly, maybe an order of magnitude more costly than monetary policy in addressing demand shortfalls. But increasingly, there's been tendency for, for governments in general to rely more on fiscal policy because of a perception that monetary policy is ineffective at zero or negative interest rates. Now, just as an aside, my own view is that monetary policy remains highly effective even when interest rates are at zero and fiscal policy is not needed even in a zero interest rate environment. But obviously I'm in the minority on that issue. And the important point here is as long as there's a perception that monetary policy is ineffective at zero or near zero interest rates, there's gonna be pressure to use fiscal policy, which will ultimately be very costly. I think the, the recent fiscal actions um, are, are going to impose a, a major cost on the economy in the future. In fact, we're already starting to see that cost. There's proposals for tax increases, which are directly related to the fact that the government has been running large budget deficits in recent years. So these tax increases will lead to slower economic growth in the future. In contrast, monetary stimulus does not increase the national debt. And therefore, if we can have a policy environment where monetary stimulus is enough, as it was pretty much during the so-called great moderation of um, the early 80s to about 2007, that kind of policy environment will lead to more efficient macroeconomic stabilization policy. So that's one advantage of keeping uh, interest rates at a moderate level. A second advantage is that it allows for smaller central bank balance sheets. So um, Switzerland and Japan, for instance, have central bank balance sheets that are more than 100% of GDP. Now, why is that? It's not because they just decided it was a good idea to have very, very large balance sheets. Rather, what's happened is when you have countries with extremely low rates of growth in nominal GDP or low inflation, if you prefer that indicator, there's an increased demand for monetary base money. And to avoid the economy plunging into depression, central banks will usually accommodate that increased demand for base money with uh, various QE programs, asset purchases, which lead to very high rates of uh, 
monetary base to GDP. In other words, very large central bank balance sheets as a share of GDP. And as we've already heard, some of this can end up distorting the allocation of capital. In Japan, uh, the Bank of Japan has even bought equity funds and so on. So um, there's real costs to central bank balance sheets becoming larger and larger in terms of the distortions it could inflict on the economy as a whole. So one solution for this is to uh, eliminate interest on bank reserves. Um, and that's something I favor. If necessary, you could even have negative interest rate on reserves to try to reduce central bank balance sheets as has been done in some other countries. But the simplest solution is to combine eliminating interest on bank reserves with a policy that leads to moderate long-term interest rates. And that means a policy where nominal GDP growth is high enough to sustain interest rates that are significantly above zero. In other words, to return to the pre-2008 policy regime in the United States, where the central bank balance sheet was much smaller than 10% of GDP. <clears throat> now, I, I should just notice, note as an aside that these arguments are presenting in terms of the benefits of uh, moderate long-term interest rates are an additional, in addition to other arguments, standard arguments for why you might have a positive rate of inflation, for instance, the uh, problem of downward wage inflexibility. So there's, there's many reasons why we might want to have a nominal GDP growth rate, trend growth rate, high enough to avoid the zero interest rate trap on nominal interest rates. Okay, now I'd like to talk a little bit about clarification. What could Congress do to clarify the mandate? First, Congress could indicate whether it's okay for the Fed to adopt a policy of negative interest on bank reserves. Right now, as far as I know, there's a lot of ambiguity associated with whether the Fed has the legal authorization to do so. Um, that's an alternative way beyond higher interest rates of avoiding the problem of large central bank balance sheets, or at least minimizing the problem. And um, ironically, I actually personally favor granting the Fed the policy, the option of adopting negative interest rates. So, you know, sometimes people will ask me, you know, do you favor negative interest rates? And that's a very ambiguous question. If you're asking, do I favor a policy that results in negative interest rates, then the answer is no. I favor policies that raise the equilibrium interest rate well above zero. If you're asking me whether I favor the central bank having the option of paying a negative interest rate on bank reserves, if the equilibrium interest rate has already fallen to a negative level, then the answer would be yes. A second clarification from Congress would be how much scope the, the Fed has to do uh, whatever it takes to achieve its desired uh, level of nominal spending or aggregate demand in the economy. So the Fed's been given these mandates like, you know, price stability, high employment, and so on. But Congress has never really clearly indicated whether the Fed should do whatever it takes to achieve those goals or should the Fed not go beyond a certain point and defer to Congress to fill in the rest of the gap with fiscal policy? Again, personally, I would favor a clarification that gave 
the Fed the power to do whatever it takes, but also limited its actions in certain ways. For instance, when interest rates are positive, it seems to me that the Fed should focus only on purchasing treasury securities. And the purchase of other securities should only be done in an emergency situation where the Fed was at the zero lower bound and there weren't enough treasury securities to purchase in order to achieve its mandate in terms of inflation and employment. And if we had a policy of moderate long-term interest rates, I believe that those occasions would occur only very rarely, although perhaps COVID might have been one of those cases. Okay, I'd like to finish up with a couple of misconceptions about the uh, role of, say, a whatever-it-takes policy. Uh, a lot of people, when I use the term whatever it takes, picture a very large central bank balance sheet, a very active central bank doing a lot of QE. But in fact, I think in, in many cases, it's, it would exactly be the opposite result if the Fed were truly committed to a whatever it takes policy of um, maintaining adequate nominal GDP growth. Let me just give you a, a simple thought experiment. As you know, Japan has had almost no inflation for 25 years, almost no nominal GDP growth, and near zero interest rates, and it has an enormously large monetary base. Now, that leads people to wonder, well, how much more QE would Japan have to do to raise their inflation rate to 5 or 10%? Surprisingly, the answer is probably less than zero, because if the Japanese were actually to adopt a credible policy of higher inflation, then the demand for base money in Japan would fall sharply. For instance, imagine the Bank of Japan promised to depreciate the yen against the dollar at 5% per year, a crawling peg system. Under that kind of regime, nominal interest rates in Japan would rise to 5% above US nominal interest rates, and the demand for zero interest rate base money in Japan would fall very, very sharply, probably to less than 10% of GDP. So in my view, the reason for granting a central bank a whatever it takes uh, authorization to hit its targets is specifically so that it will have to do less than otherwise. It's when the credibility of the central bank is in question, whether it's doubtful that the central bank can achieve its targets, that it's most likely that there'll be a very high demand for um, monetary base currency plus bank reserves and you end up with these large QE programs as sort of a defensive measure. Uh, finally, one other misconception, uh, since I'm talking about central bank mandate in a world of low interest rates, um, low interest rates have put pressure on central banks to engage in bubble popping, reducing asset prices that look overvalued. But in fact, it's rational in a world of very low real interest rates for PE ratios in the stock market and price to rent ratios in the housing market to be much higher than during say the 20th century. So it's not clear that there is any bubble that needs to be popped with um, central bank policy. The danger of trying to do this is illustrated from an anecdote from the 1920s. In 1928, Governor Strong of the New York Fed was under pressure to adopt a tighter monetary policy to sort of pop the bubble on Wall Street. And he said something, and I'm paraphrasing here, something like, if one child misbehaves, must I spank them all? And unfortunately, Governor Strong died in 1928, 
And after he died, the new leadership at the Fed decided they were going to raise interest rates enough to pop the Wall Street stock market bubble. So they ended up spanking Wall Street, but they also ended up spanking almost everyone else in the US economy. So I would prefer the Fed stick to its core mandate and not try to pursue other goals. Thank you. Okay, great. Um, thank you for those remarks. Um, so I think what I'm going to do now is just actually ask each question, each panelist a question in turn. And Scott, I'll start with you since you were just up and are already on screen. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how you think the 2020 crisis would have played out had fiscal policy not stepped in in the way it did and had monetary policy sort of been left to right the ship as, as you suggest should be the case. You know, that's hard to say. I think that uh, when people talk about fiscal policy, there's two parts of it. Part is the automatic stabilizers, and I have no problem with that. So I certainly favored a large increase in the budget deficit um, during COVID to address unemployment compensation and a lot of these issues. The parts I oppose, the $2,000 checks to everyone, that sort of thing, um, you know, they may have had some beneficial effect, but I don't think in terms of the job market, the effect was that pronounced. We've actually had uh, a significant shortage of uh, workers in many companies in recent months. And if anything, we probably ended up overstimulating. I also think that people underrate the importance of the Fed's commitment under average inflation targeting to bring prices back up to the previous trend line. In my view, that was the biggest reason why we recovered much more quickly this time than during the Great Recession. There was no commitment to get back to the previous trend line in the Great Recession. And that commitment this time around, combined with automatic stabilizers, which would have resulted in quite a bit of effective uh, fiscal stimulus, in my view, would have been enough without some of these extra checks, which in many cases were just saved or uh, spent on goods that were imported from China and, and have created bottlenecks and so on. So I can't say that the fiscal stimulus had no benefit. It, it may have brought the unemployment rate down a little bit more quickly than otherwise. <clears throat> but um, I think we, in the future, need to move towards a policy regime where we don't need to rely on fiscal stimulus because it's unlikely Congress will do it in the most uh, effective way possible. The Fed's simply more competent at that sort of policy. Okay, interesting. Um, I'm actually going to move right to Karen. And Karen, first, I, I wonder if you would want to respond to Scott's, Scott's remarks there. And then secondly, I wonder if you'd walk us through your logic for how the Fed is driving income inequality, because I think, you know, the I think we're all probably familiar with the logic of how the Fed might drive wealth inequality through asset price inflation, but income inequality seems a little let less obvious to me. So I wonder if you could just kind of, you know, clarify for us. I think, I mean, let me start there. It, it is, and we know the wealth equality. I have to say, I think it's it's a little more obvious now. When I started writing the book it, it, in um, 2018, it wasn't. Um, people were, very, you know, there was a lot, particularly at the Fed and others, of resistance to even thinking about the, the distributional impact on wealth. Um, I think perhaps if only because the sheer force of the, the uh, financial market movements uh, ever since uh, have, have demonstrated that. The problem on income equality, I think it's to what I mentioned in passing, which is that because the economy has become increasingly financialized, and that is an artifact in part, again, the Fed is not responsible for everything. And I, I'm, so I'm oversimplifying. 
but ultra low rates penalize savers so that the capital income channel is only available through the markets, which most Americans cannot access. I know there are all these statistics about, you know, every American has a, an equity, a uh, piece of equity in the, his or her stocking. But when you actually look at who has all the financial market assets, the top 1% of the United States is 53% of the assets in the equity markets and the top 10% has 80%. So you really see a significant shift in capital income. Now, I do think one of the most destructive aspects of ultra low rates, which um, I, 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 Scott may disagree, agree with him on moderate interest rates, it's because the equilibrium between borrowing and saving has been broken. And average households are still savers, but they, they lose money every time they save. And that destruction of capital income significantly exacerbates economic inequality. And the financialized economy also changes the sources of employment. Again, the lack, the lack of employment for outside of the, the service sector is, a, is, a, is the consequence of, of education, of trade policy, but driven very powerfully by monetary policy as well. And you see that, again, because middle-class wages in, in 2019 on, in a real, we're exactly the same in real terms as they were in 2000, but prices have gone way up, particularly prices. It, it, yes, there was nominal price stability, but you look and you break it down on the sectors that are most important to lower, lower moderate income households. And the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland has done a very good piece of work on this. You see families now having to move to two wage earners versus one and many more hours worked and that may seem like household income is up, and it is in nominal terms, but in terms of family economic security, because pricing for education, 600% um, since the early 90s, prices for health, prices for housing, these established prices, not often well captured in the nominal inflation numbers, have really redefined what middle class we used to have and you see that, I think, very strongly in the income numbers as well. Okay, interesting, interesting. Um, and did you have any response to Scott's comments earlier? Well, I think he's absolutely right in focusing on moderate interest rates. I, I talk about that a lot in my book and, and the Fed has discounted that, but I think we really, I, and I agree with him in terms of, uh, looking at an equal interest rate equilibrium, I, I, I think we'd have to take this offline. I'm, I'm much more focused on real than nominal interest rates, precisely because I think that's what matters in terms of economic inequality. If we don't focus on the distributional impact of the capital income flows, as well as the um, uh, broader effects and the structure of the economy from, from real interest rates, we, we may um, overlook some critical factors that, that um, truly do affect long-term shared prosperity. Interesting. And Atmar, switching over to you, um, I, I know you mentioned during your, during your discussion that you know, the markets are better sort of equipped to price in climate risks than a bunch of unelected central bankers. Um, but I guess the, the thing that kind of struck out to me immediately or stuck out to me immediately is that you could probably, and people did make the same argument around mortgage-related risks in the run-up to the financial crisis, this idea that you know, the market is pricing them, the Fed should be hands-off. 
And we all saw how that played out. So I guess, you know, in, in instances where central bankers are watching what they think is a mispricing in the market, what do you think should happen in those cases? Like what, what would be ideal? What would have been ideal in the 2008 example? What would be ideal now? Uh, first, I'm not a believer in perfect markets that they find always uh, the best price. Uh, information might be dis distorted, etc. So this is a general remark. Uh, but on the issue, if central banks know better than the market, uh, my concern is the following. Um, I've established the research department at the ECB, etc. And it's a powerful uh, uh, department now with uh, many intelligent uh, e economists doing a good job, but they have no special expertise so far in climate policies. So even a central bank has limited resources. They can print money to pay for their salaries, but they have limited resources. And uh, building up, uh, so to say, a climate policy research uh, this needs huge research, uh, investment of huge uh, resources, just to come close to the knowledge which is already accumulated in institutions which are speci specialized in this field. So uh, this is the, my first point. And, and the second point is, um, if the central bank um, uh, makes studies in this field and if they have uh, good results, intervening in the market on this basis is also a, a very delicate issue. Uh, you might get in, co in conflict with uh, government policies, etc. Uh, you will be torn immediately into a political discussion. And uh, as you have seen, my, the main thrust of my concern about central bank independence is that uh, politicization of the, the decision process in central banks. This is my, my main concern. And uh, if I may add just one point, because I focused on green monetary policy because it's uh, a current issue. I've written several papers on whatever it takes of Mario Draghi in uh, 2012. Uh, it has calmed the market, uh, no, uh, no cent was intervened uh, or lost, it was just communication. Uh, but it was communication which implies an obligation of the central bank uh, to keep uh, the monetary union with its 19 members together. This is implicit guarantee, so to say. It's based on, on, on conditions, etc. It has not happened so far, but, but it's an implicit, uh, implicit responsibility which should remain in, in, in the domain of politics. If a country, I don't mention any name, <laughs> it's dangerous. Uh, if any country gets into trouble, it's the task of the community of governments to collect money and to support this country. But it's not the responsibility of an independent central bank. So for me, the green side is only an additional nail, so to say, uh, into the innocence, political innocence of central banking. 
Greg online actually has a very related question. So I'll ask, I'll ask you it first and then I'll throw it to the rest of the panelists. But he asks, what are the biggest risks in your eyes of blurring the lines between fiscal and monetary policy? Pardon? Yeah. What are the biggest risks? You know, you identify a couple of major risks between blurring those lines. The question to Karen. <laughs> I was going to ask Karen too. I was just wondering if you could all, all answer it. No, I, I, I agree what, what the ECB is doing. The border between fiscal policy and monetary policy is substantially blurred. Substantially blurred. And coming back again to the issue I mentioned before, uh, the ECB is now continuing quantitative easing. It's still, uh, it remains still in crisis mode. And this is very difficult to understand because the crisis uh, has disappeared. Uh, the economic crisis, pandemic is still is still going on. Uh, by the way, if I may just refer, I think there is a misdiagnosis of the present situation almost everywhere. Uh, the economic downturn caused by COVID is treated in terms of cyclical downturn. That, but this is something very different. It's a combination of supply and demand shock. We have bottlenecks, etc. So this is very different from a normal cyclical uh, downturn and, and recovery. So policies uh, must be addressed very differently. It's for me the time of fiscal policy and not of uh, monetary policy. Monetary policy just can accommodate the financial markets. That's an interesting point. And Karen, I wonder if I wonder if you take that question as well. Sure. Well, I, I agree with what Otmar said, and that was the point I was trying to make in my presentation, that the, there is no distinction between fiscal and monetary policy, except in, in the textbooks and in the minds of the Fed when it's convenient for them to, to, to cite it. Uh, because monetary policy has profound fiscal impact and often uh, mutes, if not counters, the impact of, of fiscal policy. So I think the question is not what if, but what, what now? Um, and I really do believe that the key for the Fed is to recognize, as opposed to just poo-pooing its fiscal mandate, it has one, determine overtly what that means in terms of its policy. And I believe it should step back as quickly as possible from assume, pretending, for example, that um, the sectors in which it holds large portfolios are just somehow the, the artifact of some pure monetary policy theory or a, a profound assessment of near-term financial stability. These are really who wins, who loses decisions. And uh, if the Fed is not transparent about them and then Congress and the rest of us determine the, the lines of that mandate, uh, the Fed will become a de facto uh, fiscal power, a de jure fiscal power recognized as such, and then playing a huge role in, the, in climate risk, in the payment system, uh, in uh, economic uh, credit allocation supporting. And we know, I mean, the Fed is supporting housing. Why not support? Um, uh, it's it, it make that choice. It didn't have to. It could have supported affordable housing, not single family housing through the, the MBS. I mean, there are lots of decisions out there. We, I think we need to make far more transparent and then determine as a, as a nation the appropriate um, perimeters of, uh, of a, a monetary versus fiscal policy because we sure don't know them now. 
Okay, interesting. And Scott, I wonder if you could answer that question as well. You know, what, what do you see as the risk to blurring those lines? So I have two big problems with using fiscal policy in general. One is that Congress isn't really good at the timing of fiscal policy. Um, we saw that in the late 2010s when the, the budget deficit basically doubled at a time when it should have been shrinking, the economy was booming. So fiscal actions are often wildly mistimed. <clears throat> in addition, fiscal stimulus ends up increasing the national debt and putting a bigger tax burden on future generations, which tends to slow economic growth. And if you don't wanna think about it in terms of taxes, and if you're more progressive than me and worry about spending, a lot of fiscal stimulus essentially crowds out more effective spending programs. <clears throat> Excuse me, I, I saw some progressives that were sort of bemoaning the fact that a lot of the fiscal stimulus from late last year and early this year went out and did very little, and that money could have been used for some of the other goals they have in terms of government spending. So it's a very inefficient tool, and it's not so much I worry about the blurring of the lines, it's just I think that the Fed should focus on stabilizing aggregate demand. That's its job, it has the tools to do so. Congress should focus on what sort of policies for taxes and spending are effective and each one should do what it's capable of doing most effectively. Interesting, and one of the other questioners online asks, you know, if the Fed should not be in the business of popping bubbles, as you had mentioned earlier, um, should it also not continue its Greenspan put policy? So I, I guess the, you know, for our less less familiar listeners, I assume what that means is should should the Fed not also be in the business of kind of stepping into rescue markets when things get a little bit dicey? Yeah, very good question. So on both the upsides and downside, you need to be symmetrical. So here's what I would say. The Fed should only respond to market signals to the extent that they provide useful information about the future path of nominal GDP growth or aggregate demand. So it should focus on total aggregate spending and not worry about financial markets. Now there may be times on both the upside and downside where there are market signals of too much spending or too little. And it is appropriate for the Fed to respond to those market signals. So if Greenspan was responding to a stock market crash because he thought it was going to lower nominal GDP growth below trend or below target, absolutely respond to that with monetary policy. But that, and that also applies on the high side. If you have a asset price boom that threatens to push aggregate demand to levels that are above the Fed's target, then by all means respond to that with tighter monetary policy. So it's okay to use markets as an indicator of your ultimate goal variables, but don't view them as something, as a separate target in and of themselves apart from aggregate demand. Interesting, interesting. Okay, great. Um, and then I guess, you know, we've got another question asking that, you know, Nikhil online is asking that, and he cites a specific paper, De Bartoli, Gali, and Gambetti, and saying that, you know, they found that the zero lower bound constraint was largely irrelevant. Should their and others' empirical findings have any impact on how we think about the moderate interest rates mandate? And I wonder, Scott, if you could take that, maybe I'll throw it to Karen after you. Yeah, I mean, I don't think the, the zero lower bound actually does prevent effective monetary policy. But again, I'm kind of reacting to the world we live in where my views are in the minority. So um, 
I guess I'm a little bit torn on this. In a perfect world where the Fed understood that it and was able to do whatever it takes to maintain uh, on target growth and nominal GDP, then yes, by all means, don't worry about maintaining nominal, uh, I'm sorry, moderate interest rates. Just set the rates wherever appropriate for your other goals. Um, but I don't think we live in that world. And I think there's increasing pressure over the last couple of business cycles in particular to use fiscal policy aggressively, much more than in the recessions of 2001 or 1991 and so on. So I think the problem is actually getting worse. We're going further away from my preferred way of looking at the world and looking at monetary policy. And that's why I'm taking the moderate interest rate mandate more seriously. I think it actually would be beneficial to go back to the pre-2008 economy where we did have moderate interest rates and there was a perception even among Keynesians that the Fed was really all you needed to you know, stabilize inflation at 2% or whatever, and you didn't need fiscal policy. I'd like to return to that world. Interesting. Uh, Karen, I wonder, I wonder what your thoughts are about that. One of the reasons I support a very direct focus on moderate interest rates is that if the Fed adhere long-term rates, if the Fed adheres to that aspect of its charter, it has much more room. It has more tools in the proverbial toolkit. Right now, as it we're at the zero lower bound in nominal terms and below it, the Fed is, I think we need to focus a lot more on what is the Fed doing to control interest rates. Um, it's not doing a traditional Fed funds markets. It's because they're not working. This is a really important part. It hasn't worked. So it's moving, playing around with interest on, ex, on reserves, bank reserves, and they are not proving the floor under short-term rates the Fed had wanted. So it's been inventing other facilities. And like the one that I think is most important to remember about is the overnight reverse repo facility. It's got over a trillion dollars in it. it met, well, a couple of months, a month ago, it was up to 1.6 trillion. It's redefining the markets in incredible ways moving money flows through the money market funds through um, outside the breach the perimeter of bank regulation really redefining how the financial system is working by virtue of the feds and they're not happy about it if you read the minutes of the of the feds meetings going back now to the when the, the onrp was created it saw this danger coming but it's been so strapped, it's been reducing, increasing how much money market funds can use the ONRP, who has access to it, and the size has ballooned. And even now, rates are falling at very much in constant danger of breaching the nominal, nominal zero lower bound with the terrific damage that would do to, find, to market confidence. So the system isn't working as it's structured right now because the U.S. economy is so different, uh, partly by virtue of the new financial system, partly by virtue of acute economic inequality, that traditional, conventional, even unconventional monetary policy theory has broken down in leading the Fed to, to make things up. But these things have trillion dollar plus price tags. We really need to be thinking them through a lot harder than, than people are doing. They seem technical, they're, they're not. I guess I wonder how you would recommend that the Fed get, you know, to a place to a world in which we have more moderate interest rates, because you sort of previously implied that some of the things that they're doing with unconventional policy are bad and that they're fostering various types of inequality. But it seems like those are sort of what the Fed has in its toolbox to lift rate, lift, you know, lift growth and potentially rates down the road at this point. And I, I guess I just wonder how you square that circle. 
Uh, it's be, I, I think that the, the Fed has overwhelmed the markets. And I think if you, you would see, and uh, uh, I actually did some, some work on this in the book that got picked up in a recent, we did some charts and they show that you really do, you didn't see the assumption that ultra low rates boost employment, I think is not borne out by what happened in 2010 to 20. 2019, when you see employment only starting to pick up as the Fed was dancing around raising rates in 2016, 2018, because the market was beginning to operate more freely as assets stopped yield chasing and just tentatively began to, to produce productive output. And we won't see that until the Fed steps back. I'd like to see the Fed taper much faster and also, if possible, begin to allow rates to rise. I agree with what Otmar says. There isn't a justification in anything that the Fed says. How are we? If we have the robust, robust, robust growth and employment increases for which the Fed likes to take credit, then why do we still have an eight point six trillion dollar Fed portfolio and and real negative interest rates? It doesn't make sense. I think I think the Fed could move a lot farther, a lot faster, and I think that would actually generate more sustained uh, employment growth. Interesting. And I wonder, you know, and I'll ask this to you, but then I'll throw it to the other two as well. I wonder what you see as the practical consequences of a large balance sheet and how you think the world would look differently if we had a smaller one. I think the practical consequence of the Fed's huge balance sheet is that everybody's chasing yield um, in the marketplace and it's driving well, I step back. I mean, the really practical impact of this, and it's why there is this fevered speculation over, is it Jay Powell? Is it, you know, who is, who is it, and how will it work? The reason for this, I think, fevered speculation is that nobody's trading on fundamentals. There's nothing to do with, prof with profit, with earnings, with productivity, with product quality. It's got to do with the Fed. And that just changed as the economy. And this is why I think the, the fiscal, again, the fiscal borderline is, 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 a, is a giant big bog. It, it, there, there's, no, there's no dividing line anymore, but we would see much more, much more output and I think ultimately sustained growth if the only way to get rich weren't by betting in the financial markets or buying an even bigger house. This, this is a, a, a not a, a sound and healthy economic system when everybody's running around buying Bitcoin. I mean, this, that's all yield chasing behavior. And, I, and who can blame people? You can't, people can't save for a retirement. They can't buy a, save to buy a house. They can't save to put their kids through school. You know, it's fascinating to me that a larger percentage of lower income African-American households own Bitcoins than middle class white families because people are, are scared and, and they've got reason to be. So they're behaving what many people might think is irrationally, but it's actually quite rational. Financial intermediation is, is really broken down. And I, I put that largely at the, at the feet of the Fed. Interesting. Interesting. Okay. Otmar, I wonder if you have any thoughts on that and then any kind of concluding thoughts because we are getting close to the end here. Are you asking me? I was asking Omar. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> um, I basically agree with the arguments brought forward by Cara and Scott, but uh, uh, I wonder if this issue that central banks shouldn't take care of asset prices is such a 
good message all all of the time. Certainly, central bank should not, cannot target asset prices. They cannot, should not break a bubble. It would destroy their reputation. But uh, just ignoring asset price developments, question mark. Uh, I, I remind you, uh, the building of the, of the bubble leading to the financial crisis in 2007-8, of course, identifying a bubble is only possible ex post, you know. But at that time, I, I remember, uh, I visited very often the US and talked to my friends at the Fed and uh, in academia. And uh, I saw the uh, rise in house prices. And uh, I asked my friend at the Fed, uh, are you not concerned? And uh, literally, he told me, after Second World War I, we never had a fall nationwide in house prices. And for me, this was not a convincing argument that one should not be concerned. It was for me a kind of announcing that one day a black swan will uh, appear. Uh, and uh, so it came, and uh, the development of uh, subprime mortgages, etc. This was crazy. This was crazy. And uh, a central bank should be concerned. What should it do? First, if it is uh, responsible for regulation, they could have regulated the market. But Greenspan declined that. Uh, this should have been the main tool. But in such an environment, raising interest rates timely, very early, not in big steps, and, and uh, accompanying it with uh, proper communication. Uh, we know Alan Greenspan once said irrational exuberance, and then was he was quoted in Congress and said, you destroyed uh, my wealth with this remark. So he abstained from that. But uh, he must have convinced that something is, is, is going wrong. Uh, so raising interest rates slowly, and uh, it has an influence on the yield curve. So it's not just uh, the percentage point uh, of a rate increase by a hike by the Fed, uh, but it's working through the yield curve and uh, accompanying it with proper communication. communication. And if the central bank is credible and says, be careful, uh, we, we are not saying a, a bubble is emerging, but here are developments. And when I was at the ECB, what we did uh, when we saw comparable developments, we just published in our monthly bulletin comparison with past periods. Not saying that it's the same, but uh, look at the data and take your uh, conclusions. Interesting. And then Scott, we've got, we are already two minutes over. So in 30 seconds or less, just a quick, quick wrap up of, of your thoughts. Well, I, I guess I'm a little more skeptical of um, the, the whole asset price question, but I, I do think there are some asset markets that the Fed has to look at. And um, one example is tip spreads, the you know gap between the rate on index bonds and conventional bonds, which is you know a crude indicator of inflation expectations. And you know, other asset markets do provide some information about the future course of um, the goal variables like inflation, nominal GDP growth. So I, I certainly don't think they should ignore asset markets. But um, as I said in my talk, I do think that in the 21st century, the new normal of asset prices will be higher because of permanently lower real interest rates. And 
it makes it very hard to judge what's a bubble and what's not a bubble today. Okay, great. Well, thank you all for listening in on this panel. I am sorry we ran a little bit over. You have 12 minutes until the next panel. Um, so please take a break and then come right back uh, for the next session. Um, thank you all very much. And thanks to the panelists. And thanks to Cato for organizing.